chapter 22. Uh, just a few minutes, we'll be reading verse 14 through 23. Um, and you know, as we think about communion, as we think about the Lord's Supper, it's something that many of us have likely practiced our entire lives. We know why we do communion, um, but it's a good to have a reminder every now and then, just to go back over to talk about why we do it, how we do it, those kinds of things, so that we don't have a mistake. I may not be the only preacher preaching specifically on the biblical definition and practice of communion this week. If you are deeply entrenched in the uh, Christian internet community, huh? Oh, sorry. If you're deeply entrenched in the Christian internet community, you may have seen some kind of comment this week um, that was very flippant and very lackadaisical about communion. Um, and not that I think that, that very many people are embedded in that community, but um, it just serves good to set the record straight from time to time. So that's, that's what we're going to do. So another good reminder is for us to dig into Scripture and just know that we know how to practice communion, that we know what Jesus taught us. So for nearly two years now, the world has been controlled by the, for the fear and the regulations and everything surrounding COVID-19, and many people, for one reason or another, have left the church. Um, there's been a lot of studies already done on the effect of COVID and all the protocols on churches. And what they have found pretty much is that large churches continue to get larger if you count their online following. So there's not as many people in-person services as there was before COVID period across all the churches. There's just not as many people. But if you count their online following, larger churches are continuing to grow, whereas smaller churches are shrinking at a, at a greater rate than they were before COVID. And so the idea is that some people may be gravitating to larger churches and some people may just be leaving the church entirely. Um, and, and so most churches have at least smaller churches. That, in that study, it was defined by um, 100 attenders or less in a regular church service. Um, that, would be, that would be considered a smaller church. So people still go to the store. People still go to work. People still go to entertainment venues uh, because there is something in those places that they either want or they feel like they need. But people don't go to church, not as many people as much anymore, because a lot of people do not realize that church has something that they need. A lot of people thought that it was just something added to their week. It might give them a little boost from time to time. They may do a little service from time to time, but they didn't understand the desperate need that they have for church. And so hopefully today, as we look into Scripture and we look at Jesus' attitude towards gathering together and, and establishing the Lord's Supper, maybe we will understand some of the urgency of gathering together and doing the same thing. So the sermon in the sentence is this. Jesus has called us to come together remember his sacrifice, and remain faithful until he returns. So I want to read you this short little passage here, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through verse 23. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. <clears throat> and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink 
of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? Okay, so we're going to look at this in three parts, and um, this, is, this is still not going to be another like forensic investigation of every word. We're going to be looking at specifically what Jesus said about the Lord's Supper, how we go about it, and then we're actually going to take his warning here very, very seriously. So to begin with, we celebrate together. Um, that's an important thing to remember about the Lord's Supper. So we all know the setting for this passage. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have gathered together in the upper room to remember the Passover. Um, and, and many of the disciples, they probably knew that Jesus was in danger, that it was a dangerous time, but they likely did not know just how immediate that danger was or just how suddenly things were going to change. Only Jesus would have really known that himself. Now, the Passover was already one of the holiest days in the Jewish calendar, but Jesus, in this passage, is about to infuse it with even more meaning than it had before. So the first thing that really sticks out in this passage is that Jesus states that I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus earnestly desired to be with his disciples to share this Passover meal. Without digging too deep into Jewish history, um, we should be reminded that the Passover was celebrated together with every member of a family. If you'll remember what was going on in Egypt at that particular time, Moses had went to the Pharaoh and asked for the people to be released, and Pharaoh had kind of back and forth, back and forth, but he always landed on no, and so one plague after another came. And now on the night of the Passover, the last plague was to come. That was the, the death of the firstborn of every family. And the Jews, or the Hebrews is what they'd been known as at that time, they were told that you would have to sacrifice or, or kill a lamb and, and, and paint its blood on the doorpost above your door if you wanted that angel of death to pass over your family and not kill your firstborn. And so the families would have gathered together the father would have wanted everybody in his family to be together, close together, close by, so he could see what was going on as they celebrated that first Lord's or that first Passover. And so, throughout the years, throughout the generations, this was a celebration that they repeated every year, and it was always a gathering of family and friends. So you look at Jesus and the disciples there, some of the disciples probably did have family that they weren't near. Now, we do have to remember that maybe there were times that people didn't gather with family simply because, well, they didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, they didn't have planes, they didn't have the things, the instruments of travel that we do today. So to some extent, you had to be where you were, and if you just happened to be far away from family or traveling or something like that, then, then maybe you had 
Passover with someone else, but if at all possible, you gather together with your family. And that's certainly what Jesus intended to do with his disciples. Um, They were following this tradition because Jesus ensured that all of his disciples and himself could be there for that. Now, you know, there's two kinds of people in this world. I think there's the kinds of people that take off a Band-Aid slowly and the type of people that rip it off, right? And, and, you know, for the most part, you look at Jesus, he seems to be just yank the Band-Aid off kind of person. Um, and, and so you would think that if, if he's approaching crucifixion, approaching all that, he might say, let's just get it over with. But no, everything in its own time, in its own place, and he had to arrive at that Thursday night with his disciples to establish this, what we know now as the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, communion literally means together, sharing together. And so when we look at what that means, it's important that we gather together. As we read through the rest of this passage and we remember other um, communion passages in the New Testament, we see that the church gathered together. Now, we are taught that the church is a family. So this morning, maybe you know everybody here, probably you do. We are not just acquaintances, and we're not merely friends. We are truly brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so we gather together. That is an important part. And I think that one of the things that, it wasn't lost during the COVID pandemic. What happened, I think, is that everything kind of, Everything that was already happening kind of accelerated. And one of the things that accelerated is people forgot the need for gathering together in church. But Jesus desperately wanted or earnestly desired to gather together with his disciples. And that sets an example for us to want to earnestly gather together, earnestly desire to gather together and to have this communion. So one of the aspects of the comment of of the thing that kind of launched this and I'm sure it launched in a lot of pastors all over America was the fact that the person said they just were sitting at their house now there are times and our deacons have went and delivered communion elements and and people have had communion at their homes there are times for that there are times and places for that Uh, But this person was not physically disabled. This person was not a shut-in. This person would have been totally capable of getting to a church and having communion with the fellowship, with the gathering there, the person that made the comment. And so that is one important part that we need to look at when we think about communion is gathering together. Whenever possible, however possible, getting together and worshiping the Lord together. You know, it's one thing to remember something for yourself. But isn't it a little bit easier to remember if there's two of you involved? Isn't it a little bit easier if you say, hey, help me remember this, I'll help you remember that. I have a joke, y'all all know it, but then again, we hadn't told it in a while, so you've probably forgotten it. There was a man and wife, they were getting ready to go to bed. And the wife said, you know what, I need a little snack. I need a little something. She said, would you go, turn to her husband, would you go down and make me some pancakes? He said, Yes, I'll go down and make you some pancakes. Now, I mean, we know this, but the man had started to forget things a little bit. She said, you know, the doctor told you you need to write things down. Will you write this down so that you don't get down to the kitchen and forget what you're supposed to do entirely? And he says, no, I can remember pancakes. And so as he's going out the door, she says, hey, don't forget the syrup. You better write that down. He says, I can remember pancakes and syrup. She says, you know what? I bought some semi-sweet chocolate chips, and I'm thinking if you put the syrup and the semi-sweet chocolate chips on it, that would make it even better. But you really better write that down. He says, I can remember pancakes, syrup, chocolate chips, no problem. 
and a little whipped cream too. Write that down. He says, I can remember the whipped cream. I've got this. So he goes down to the kitchen. He's gone 20, 30 minutes. He comes back up with bacon. He comes back up with eggs. He comes back up with, you know, the frozen biscuits, a little pop-open Pillsbury thing. He comes up with a, with a nice little spread of, of breakfast. And he sits, sits down in front of her, and he sits his down in front of him. And they have breakfast in bed at night. And um, she says, I knew you should have wrote that down. You forgot the jelly. Sometimes remembering together helps us to remember better. And so we need to remember together about Jesus Christ, what his sacrifice was, what we're supposed to be doing when we are here. You know, communion is not just taking the elements and moving on with our day. Communion ultimately is remembering that he paid a price for us. Every little bit of that is, a, is, is, is it's not just symbols, it is reminders of who Jesus is, the price that he paid, what it means for us. There are fulfilled prophecies involved in the Lord's Supper. There are future prophecies involved in the Lord's Supper, and we need to remember those things, and we need to remind each other. And so, although many people don't realize it, this gathering of fellowship, this, this community that we have, helps us to stay on top of that, remembering, knowing what God has said and what God has done for us. So, the single greatest act of community that we perform here at the church is when we observe the Lord's Supper. From, from New Testament times, Old Testament times, sitting down and sharing a meal with people, that was, that was fellowship, that was togetherness. And when we sit and we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, now I know we don't give you a whole lot here. You know, portions are small. But the idea is that we are together, that we are remembering Jesus. We're reminding each other of Jesus. That is important. When we together commune with Jesus in remembrance of his sacrifice until he returns, we are experiencing the type of worship that cannot be replicated in any other way. You can't do this any other way. Now, the next part is that we remember his sacrifice. So as we go through this passage, thinking about the things that Jesus said, um, Jesus begins to introduce the elements that were used in the sacrifice. Um, and he states that he will not participate in, the, in this Passover meal. They don't have our terminology yet. Jesus didn't give them all that terminology. That comes a little bit later. <coughs> but he states that he won't participate in this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, what that says right away is that the Passover, like many other portions of the Old Testament, pointed to something fuller than what it was. And so, when we think about the Passover, the Passover was the, prom the fulfilled promise that God would allow the angel of death to, to, to pass over the houses of those who followed God's instructions. Now, that, was a, that, was, that angel of death provided a mortal death for people, and so it was a physical death. But we know that Jesus came not to, to save us from physical death, that still happens, but he came to save us from spiritual death, that is separation from God, lost in our sin and, and, and condemned for all eternity. Jesus came to save us from that. And so that's what is passing over us now, is all of that weight, all the weight of the penalty and punishment of sin is passing over us. Jesus said he wouldn't take this on until it was fulfilled in the kingdom, meaning that he wouldn't take this on until after he had done the work of the cross. He would not take it on until after that point. So what we see here is Jesus providing for his disciples the pattern that they would follow from that point forward. And so 
he begins um, with, or, or well, the, the elements of the, 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 the Passover here, or I guess in our case, the elements of the Lord's Supper here, that they were what was available. They point to the sacrifice of Jesus. The, the wine or the, the, the fruit of the vine being the blood, the bread being the body, those things point to the sacrifice that Jesus made. Now, in Luke's account, Jesus starts with the blood. Uh, we traditionally start with the bread. We usually go to 1 Corinthians where it talks about the bread first, and that's why we do that. Um, but Jesus began with the cup. He gave thanks for it, and he told them to divide it among themselves. Jesus restates that he won't partake of the fruit of the vine until uh, it, 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 he has it new in the kingdom of God. So, some people want to debate about whether this was wine or whether it was grape juice. Um, I will tell you that debate kind of really began in the 1800s, um, and it was, for the most part, at least early on, an American debate. Um, as you know, um, there was a pretty big move against alcohol in the early 1900s, led towards uh, whatever they call absolutionism, whatever they call it, where they, for, the, for the roaring 20s, nobody had any alcohol. That's Right? That's what the government said. Anyway, so we, we know that they did, but during that time, it was supposed to be forbidden. Now, whether you know this or not, that all kind of began in, or didn't begin, begin in the church, but the church was used to move that idea along. Um, I think I've told you this before, shared this with you, but um, women in America began to get tired of their husbands spending all their money on alcohol, coming home uh, drunk or, or not even coming home at all. When they did come home, they were mean, they, they, they smacked him around or whatever. So it was, it was kind of linked with women's suffrage. It passed at roughly the same time. And the idea was go to the church, get the preachers involved, get things you know, rolling to where we can stop alcohol in America. That was the whole thing. And so from that point forward, the ultra-conservative Christians wanted to erase any evidence of alcohol in Scripture. It's there. You can't erase it. Now, God used, you know, different, different times, different ways. God used wine. He used fruit of the vine, those kinds of things. But let me just say this. For the, for the purpose of the Lord's Supper, it was one cup, and at least 12 different people shared. It wouldn't matter if it was wine or grape juice. It still wasn't going to do what everybody's afraid that alcohol does to folks, okay? So it doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jesus is saying this represents... My blood, that is the new covenant, poured out for you. What doesn't matter is the journey that the great took to get into the cup. That's not what matters. What matters is Jesus' blood was shed. And so he talks first about the blood. He talks about the, the wine, that, that it was poured out. And so um, and, and should people substitute the grape juice for some other fruit? I've heard people say apple juice or this, that, and the other. Well, if you're in a place where it is impossible to get fruit of the vine, I guess you could squeeze up olives. Don't they grow on vines too? I don't know, there's a few things maybe you could use, but the, if you were in a place where you can get grape juice, get grape juice because that's what they had, um, or wine, but, but that's, that's what they had. But if you're in a place where there are no grapes, there are no fruits of the vine, then whatever juice you can get will be sufficient, I'm sure. But we don't need to be flippant with the elements that Jesus provided for them and what Jesus pointed to. We need to remember what Jesus said, and so that is important. 
you know, he, he turned next to the bread. He talked about the bread, and he talked about breaking it for them, delivering it for them. And so that was an important aspect of that. Now, we know that the bread that they used, what would have been close to hand for them, was unleavened. And so it did not have yeast in it. It had not risen. It would have been, it would have been you know, kind of crunchy like a cracker, maybe. It would not have been the kind of bread that we know of at, at, at this time, that the, you know, uh, white bread like you make a sandwich with. It wouldn't have been that kind of bread, right? Um, wouldn't have been yeast rolls or anything along those lines. So again, we don't need to be flippant with the Lord's, you know, Lord's Supper. We don't need to be flippant with the elements. That's why we use unleavened bread. And so when we partake of this in a few moments, this may not be the best bread you've ever had, but it speaks of the best thing that was ever done for you. And that's what we must remember. It speaks of the body of Jesus being broken so that we could be saved. That's what we must remember when we think about the elements. It's supposed to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. It's important also for us to remember that communion is not an obligation that rests upon every believer, but it is a celebration that is offered to every one of us. And so as we go through this in a few moments, it's not that we are following the laws, although it's important to follow God's laws, we are celebrating Jesus. Because, see, we know the whole story. Parts of it haven't been fulfilled yet, but we know the whole story. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. And there was a couple of days there that it was very difficult for the disciples. But once they saw Jesus resurrected, they were walking around with joy too as they began to understand that his death was not the end but only a beginning. Now, for us, we know for a fact Jesus died, he, re he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. We have that knowledge, but we also know that he is returning. That's the part of this that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Jesus has not returned yet, but we have reason to celebrate because we know he has kept every other promise he's ever made. He will keep this promise. So as we go through the elements of the Lord's Supper, we must remember him. Remember his sacrifice. Remember the blood. Remember the body that was broken. So we should remember that he paid the ultimate price. And why? So that we could be together. Ultimately, the primary reason that Jesus had to be sacrificed is so that the relationship between God and man could be restored. There was no other process for bringing us back into a right relationship with God without the sacrifice that Jesus made. So the sacrifice of Jesus was for fellowship. Fellowship between man and God. And then we are to be brought together to one another. And so this, this togetherness is very, very important. It is part of God's plan all along. Now let's look at the last part here. Jesus gave a warning. We know all about this warning. We know who this is about. We know the story. But we must remain faithful. That's the parting idea. We must remain faithful. This, this passage, it ends with a, with a chilling warning um, because it talks about it talks about a person that's going to betray Jesus, that's going to, to turn him over. So when Jesus makes this reference, we know that he's talking about Judas Iscariot, uh, the one that would sell information about Jesus' whereabouts for 30 pieces of silver. We know this. But here's the thing that I think is very important. Every disciple wondered if they could be the one that betrayed Jesus because it's a little bit easier than we make it out to be. Now, the plan of salvation was set in history past. God knew what he was going to do. And part of that was his betrayal by one of his own. But there was still a very significant warning for Judas himself 
and the choices that he made to betray Jesus. And so that's something that's very important. We must notice that each one of these disciples wondered, could it have been me? You know, it's also important, and this is a very important question for us, we must ask, would we betray Jesus? Would we betray him? What did Judas think was going to happen? That's been a matter of debate for a long time. Some people thought that he was trying to force Jesus' hand. He knew the power of Jesus, and he assumed that if Jesus fell into the hands of the, 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 the religious officials of that day, that he would begin to display his power, and they would all recognize him as Messiah. Some people say that it was purely evil or financial motivated. We don't know. But what we do know is that he followed Jesus, listened to the teaching, saw the miracles for three years, and then betrayed Jesus. That's what we know. You know, we ought to ask a few questions. Is it a betrayal of Jesus to be silent about his sacrifice around people that don't know about it? Is that a betrayal? When the world needs to hear about Jesus and we don't speak up, have we betrayed him? Is it a betrayal of Jesus to choose profit over service to him? Would that, would that be a betrayal if we choose profit over serving Jesus faithfully? Is it a betrayal of Jesus to choose comfort over a meaningful act of worship? Now, I know there are, there, are, there are people all over the world that can't come to a church service Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. I know that. But do you think across this great nation, with all the online services that are going on right now, do you think there's some people that decided, you know what, I'd rather stay in my PJs and watch church on Facebook than show up? Do you think that? Now, does that mean that they betrayed Jesus? I don't know. But it's worth asking the question, should we give Jesus our all? Or should we just give him what we're willing to give? I don't know that that is exactly what he was looking for. Is it a betrayal of Jesus to choose safety over obedience to the commands that he has given us? Now think about this, and this has always been incredibly difficult when I begin to think about it. So think about some of the missionaries that we know about that go overseas, that go to different places and carry their families with them. Now, can you imagine you're 20, 30 years old, you've got young children, and God says, I want you to go to this dangerous place and talk about Jesus to dangerous people. That would be terrifying for me. Even though my kids are 16 and 15 years old, that would be terrifying for God to call me to do that because I feel that one of my responsibilities is to protect my family. But would I do that? I certainly hope that I would. God hasn't called me to do that, not yet. We hadn't had the invitation yet, I don't know. But God hasn't called me to do that. But what I do know is that if we say no in a circumstance because of our safety over following Jesus, we have done something that Jesus didn't do. Jesus did not choose his safety over service. Where Jesus went, what Jesus did wasn't safe. It was sacred. It was what God called him to do. Remember that when we enter into a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ, we commit to give Him our lives because He gave us His life for salvation. That is very important for us as we are about to partake in the Lord's Supper and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Know that when you 
accept that sacrifice, you do give your life. You give your life in service to Him. That never ends. We give our lives to Him because He gave His life to us. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We remember that He did not have to come to the cross. He chose that. We read in the Gospel of John that that you, God, so loved the world that you gave your only Son. You were not forced. It was your love that made it happen. So Father, in just a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. (coughs) I pray that you remind us of your love. Remind us of the cost that Jesus had to pay. And remind us that He is coming back to gather all of us to Himself. I pray that we can truly worship this morning as we partake of these elements. Now Lord, if there is anyone gathered here this morning that does not know You as their Savior, I pray that today is a day of salvation and that their first act of obedience would be to partake in the Lord's Supper. But for those of us that have known you and have followed you, I pray that this might be like our first time partaking of communion once again. And let us truly focus on what you have done for us and what our lives need to become because of your gifts to us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.